It's um, wonderful to be able to be in this hall with you tonight. Um, And I wanted to talk about taking refuge in the Dharma and how that relates to trusting our own practice, our spiritual practice. I think one of the basic ways that we can um, have some faith in our own spiritual practice is to understand that we took birth here to learn. And, and that, that's kind of a bottom line, that if we don't um, have some realization or understanding of that, I think um, that the way that life is is pretty crazy-making, you know. Uh, so that that deeper, deeper understanding that we're here to learn is something that can really hold us, and that is an aspect of trusting the Dharma. I was looking in a <coughs> New Yorker recently. I only read the New Yorker for the cartoons, uh, <laughs> and there was a, a cartoon of a yogi sitting in a meditation hall on a zafu. And uh, he's with other yogis, and he's just answered his cell phone. (laughs) And I realized that, you know, meditation's getting very mainstream from looking at that cartoon. And the caption on it is, you know, he's answering the cell phone, talking to somebody on the other end of the line, and he says, you know, I'm crazed with this noble path. Let me get back to you. (laughs) You know, and it it can kind of take that cartoon as, you know, I'm so crazed with this noble path, you know, I'm committed to this process of learning from life. You know, I'm so committed to this process of learning from life. You know, let me get back to you. I'm devoting some of my time to this spiritual journey. When I was on staff here in 1978, a um, Buddhist monk from Burma came here named Tangpulu Sayadaw, and he was a forest monk. And he uh, was reputed to have spent 33 years in a cave um, before coming here to IMS. Uh, <laughs> and some of us on staff met him. I was on staff with Carol at that time. We were both cooks together. Uh, and we met Tang Pulu coming off the airplane. And I remember just being just, it's like I was punched in the stomach, you know, the power of his presence, you know, just the deep, deep, relaxation in his body. It's like there wasn't an ounce of tension in his body. And he was just like this light breeze, you know, that just disappeared as he went by. It's lighter than a cloud. Uh, And the kinesthetic response I had was so immense, you know, it was just indescribable. Um, And he said once, in a group interview, uh, to keep a mind like water, not like a rock, but like water. 
And if you think of life, you know, as more watery than rock-like, and if you think of a Vipassana practice as really facing the stream of life as it's changing, then we see that life is alive. You know, it's not dead. It's alive. And because it's alive, it's changing every moment. It's ungraspable. It's wildly ungraspable. So truly being awake in this, this incredible momentary change, you know, is, is actually not easy. <laughs> if you, you know, that's not new news. Uh, you know, so to be with this moment-to-moment change requires a very delicate balance of mindfulness and concentration. And we so easily fall out of balance. We get lost in the past, lost in the future. We come back. It's that simple. You know, we get lost in the past, some thought about the past, future. We come back. The other aspect of this change, of course, which has been talked about a lot, is that there's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral changing. So there's sounds, body sensations, thoughts, emotions, you know, all the just incredible change that's happening in the mind, in, in the body. But also corresponding with that, with each moment to mo- moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. So just kind of remembering that when we take refuge in the Dharma or the truth, you know, how do we trust our practice? You know, what would that mean in terms of learning to navigate in this world of change that we've taken birth into. Usually early on in our meditation practice we hear about, you know, developing just enough concentration, just enough stillness to see clearly. So we're not trying to get too much of that concentration so that we get absorbed into our our experience and can't see it clearly. We just want just enough stillness to be able to notice the change. We talk about developing the anchor as a kind of tranquil anchorage. It's meant to be a rest from this change. But it's not the typical rest. It's not like when we take holidays you know, in our fantasies and holidays about you know, figuring the universe out and that, that's actually one of my favorite holidays. You know, and you know how compelling it is to be you know, doing walking meditation and suddenly you've, you've been able to figure out Einstein's theory of relativity. <laughs> you know, and it's so hard to come back to the next step. You know? <laughs> and so, so we take these holidays and we're meant to anchor back into the present moment. And that anchoring is actually quite important. Uh, and I, this is where I wanted to focus for this part of the talk. And just how do we trust our practice in terms of developing some kind of anchor that works for us and not against us? So say we're coming back to the breath as an anchor and it's becoming a prison for us. It's becoming forced and uh, isn't exactly a safe haven. It's not neutral at that point. 
so in teaching, there's a bit of a dilemma because when you come in to teach, there's a range of people from beginners to very experienced. And generally, you start people anchored with the breath, either at the abdomen, at the chest, or at the tip of the nostrils. But for some people, that won't be the anchor that works for them. You know, for some people, it might be sound. For some people, it might just be feeling the surface of the body and the hands. You know, some kind of unique way in which we can find that uh, it's natural, it's more natural for us to become still. When we describe this just enough concentration to be with our moment-to-moment experience with some clarity, uh, what that means is we let go of control of our anchor at some point to face moment-to-moment change. So the anchor is meant to be a compromise. Yes, the breath is moving, it's changing, it's alive. Sound is moving, or whatever we pay attention to. But it's something that we're coming back to. We're coming back to. So if we're with the breath, remember, you know, if, if a sound happens or body sensation, at first when you're developing the concentration, you tend to ignore it and you're just anchoring more. But the direction of the practice if there's some energy in the course of the day, is that you start including what's predominant, including more of what's calling the attention. So the practice at that point might look like sound, body sensation, sound, thought, lost in thought, breath. Now that lost in thought is going to be inevitable at some point, of course. But if we judge it, we'll tend to get to lose more energy and think something's wrong with us. So we bring a little metta in (laughs) and start again. It's okay. We learn that it's okay that we get lost in thought. We learn that it's okay that we get lost in thought. As we learn to do that, we usually can extend that amount of time that we're with the flow of change. Breath, body sensation, um, you know, endless thought, emotion. You know, there's that change. We get lost in the thought. And then we anchor again at some point. But in the course of a day, we're going we're gonna to need to do all of this. When we're very tired, sometimes we really need to just go back to that anchoring. Or sometimes we'll be very clear and alert, and we feel more pulled into more anchoring. Other times it's like half and half. We're with what's predominant. We anchor. We're with what's predominant. We anchor. And sometimes there are times when we just let go of control of the attention. And we might get lost in a thought and come back to a sound, get lost in a thought, come back to the body sensation. We don't control it as much. In my early practice, and I couldn't have given it this kind of language because I didn't have a language for it, because mostly I was just here the breath as being the anchor, and in those days the tip of the nostrils was taught as the anchor. Uh, So it took me many years to realize that in actual fact I wasn't doing that. You know, it didn't work for me. I I would really start with sound. And in some ways I learned that the body wasn't a place that was a safe anchor for me. Uh, It wasn't neutral. So I, I anchored 
most of my practice I anchored with sound, then very maybe lightly with the tip of the nostrils with sound. I'd have an open awareness. A lot of the times I didn't anchor at all. And it wasn't because it was effortless mindfulness. It was because I just didn't bother to anchor. (laughs) In fact, that was a lot of my practice. And what I discovered in nine years, uh, practicing mostly like that, that kind of maybe light, open awareness, uh, and then a little bit with the breath anchoring that way, or just letting whatever happened happen in the course of a day, mostly what would happen is that sometimes I'd be really lost, very lost, and identified with a thought pattern or an emotion. And sometimes it would be a very light identification. And sometimes it would be just effortless mindfulness and very clear. And it wasn't so much that there was something I had to do to make that happen in the course of a day. Mostly it's determined by energy that isn't personal. Now that one took me many years to learn, you know, that I couldn't control these ups and downs of energy. But I learned how to make them more graceful. You know, instead of ups and down crashes, they became softer and softer as I got less reactive to those changes in energy. What I learned in those first years of practice is that I had total faith in mindfulness, this utter faith in all of our mindfulness. I just believe that all of us, you know, if we just mostly (laughs) trust, trust our practice and know that the way it's working for us is the way it's meant to be working for us. And it's not like something wrong is happening. Um, It's inevitable that wisdom and love will arise from being with our moment-to-moment experience. It's inevitable if you create the conditions for mindfulness uh, to appear and loving-kindness to appear. You know, the loving-kindness and wisdom will arise. After about nine years of that style of practice, um, I decided to sit with Sayadaw Upandita, who came here to teach a three-month retreat from Burma. Um, And he taught um, a very different style of practice than I was used to um, practicing. And he he teaches uh, a lot, initially, if you're a new student with him, He tends to uh, (coughs) want you to start with the first foundation of mindfulness, being mindful of the breath. Their tradition is being aware of the breath at the rising, falling movement at the abdomen. And he generally wants you to go here. He doesn't (laughs) want you to go here or here. So if I ever anchored, I was up at my nostrils. And it was very hard for me to go down to the abdomen after nine years, you know. You know, and kind of my sarcastic mind was like, Who does this guy think he is? You know, like, what, why do I have to do this? You know, I've developed this. You know, and this very precise method of reporting and in interviews, it's just, and for those of you who know me or you can, you know, kind of tend what I'm like, you know, I'm more like a James Joyce type. Um, and I felt like he was trying to turn me into a haiku master in about, you know, two seconds. It was very difficult. Um, 
interviews were really short, really short, you know, like a few minutes. Um, <laughs> and basically, all he was interested in was what were the sensations as the rising movement began, how they changed and how they ended, well, how were the sensations at the beginning of the falling movement, how they changed, how they ended, and if there was time, if I didn't spend too much time in that, I got to tell him how the lifting of the leg began, how it changed and end. And if there was time, but usually there wasn't given how I was <laughs> reporting, I could maybe on a good interview get through lifting, moving, placing before I had to get out of the interview. And it was really difficult. I used to cry after every interview because it was just so foreign to the way that I had been practicing. And I, I wanted actually to describe my first interview with him because I came in and I bowed. Uh, and it was like from the very moment we looked in each other's eyes, you know, I knew he was going to go after any places that I was attached. And he did. It's just like he said, this is where you're attached. And I said, I'm not attached. <laughs> and then he said, and then I started crying. Uh, and as I started crying, it was just this very powerful moment because he was very—he just got very soft and very compassionate, and he said, "Vipassana's having no preferences." And I had developed some bad habits in my practice of nine years—the the lack of pressure, the learning how how um, my practice developed naturally was really important for me because I trusted my practice totally. And I trusted, I had faith in anyone's practice if the conditions are there and right. Um, but there was also so much for me to learn. And if you look at the, for the breadth of this practice, what I started to see in working with him is that I had developed ability to be mindful of certain things. And I had gotten good at it. But there was a tremendous amount of control in it. And I would think I was doing choiceless awareness, but actually I didn't know how to be mindful of a lot of places in my body. Most, actually, probably 99% of my body. <laughs> I wasn't really interested in it, you know. And so to just go through that surrender of being with the breath and being with the body. And initially I tried too hard. And I tried to do it all day and all night. And Upandita starts you on four hours of sleep. That's the beginning. You know, and so if you add up all those hours and of sitting walking, and I was trying and trying, and I wasn't letting myself go where it was easy for me. And after, luckily for me, after a very short period of time, I realized that a little bit of the precision was going to go a long way, you know, in terms of what, how I was going to learn and grow. And if I tried too hard, I was getting too tight. There wasn't the relaxation. So another way I could describe that is that the, the, the heart or mind doesn't deepen unless it's relaxed. It just doesn't, especially in our culture. You know, we just try so hard. We try to be perfect. You know, we're really <laughs> hard workers. We're good at it. 
And even if you see that, you know, you could say, oh, I was really lazy here or I was lazy there. Generally speaking, we're very sincere. You know, we really want to learn. And I saw that I could do a little bit of what he was asking me. And then I had to go back to my old ways. And that's where I was strong. And it would strengthen me. So remember, it's like when you look at your practice and you see where is the ease and where is the rest. And certainly there's the tendency to get lost in, you know, habitual thought patterns that we think are holidays, but actually they're tiring when you come back. You know, you can see that actually it hasn't been that energizing, but it has been entertaining, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then after that entertainment, if you can say, oh, at least you get entertaining myself. Name it. There was a certain point where I'd name, oh, this is just soothing myself. And it was a way I'd get lost in these fantasies because I was really wanting loving kindness. And I couldn't face that I was just wanting unconditional love. I'd get caught in these fantasies. Um, And finally, instead of judging them, sometimes I'd make the choice to go back in them. But I'd go, oh, wanting love. It's okay. And over time that started to ease up because I was accepting of it. And I was accepting that I would get lost. Because you know what? You'll come back. You'll get sick of them. Maybe not sick enough for this lifetime, but you'll get sick of it and you'll come back. It gets boring after a while. You have to create a new one. I mean, how many new ones have you had this range, right? You know, because That's why there's so many channels these days (laughs) on television. (laughs) (laughs) The aspect of Upandita's teaching that I'm the most grateful for is that I started to see how much control I was having in my practice and didn't know it, and that I became interested in all experience rather than just experience that was easy for me to be attentive to. And I'm not saying that process has ended at all, but it was just the breadth of it. It's like the four foundations of mindfulness, meaning that some of us are more inclined to be aware of awareness. Some of us are more inclined toward pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and the reactions to them. Some are more inclined toward physical sensations or or just with sound. And it's important to, to learn and trust where the interest is, and that's a doorway for us uh, to be in the present moment. It's important to have that connection with where the interest is. And then over time, you can grow because you'll become interested in it, because you'll suffer where you're not interested. You'll see, you know, where the blocks are, the resistances are. And when we hold on to a hot potato long enough, what happens? You know, eventually we say, ouch. We open it, our hand, and we let it go. And that's part of the practice, is just starting to see, oh, I've been resisting fear of rejection, that's my one, for so long. 
you know, that over time I just started having the willingness to feel it because it was harder not to. And that's part of learning to trust one's practice. There's learning where in the aspect of the four foundations of mindfulness there's somewhat of an ease so that we find that way of becoming still enough to pay attention to moment to moment change. And then the next step is learning to find an ease at starting to learn some skill at being with what's difficult or painful and learning how to let pleasure pass. The other day when we had eggplant parmesan for lunch, I was having a lot of pleasant feelings associated <laughs> with eating it. And I was just like, mmm, you know, mmm, mmm. I wonder when we're going to have this again. You know, <laughs> it's like that moment of just being with the pleasure. And then I was, no- I was sort of noticing the enjoyment. But I lost it at a certain point. You know, I wanted more. I mean, it wasn't, this, was, this is what I mean by learning skill. That was an easy place for me to explore. Because being with pleasant and noticing enjoyment and attachment is just as difficult as being with unpleasant aversion or fear. So the more we learn to be mindful of the appearance of every experience, the less and less need of control we have and the more we trust our practice. This, this is really important because I think that when we first start practice, we're not that interested in aversion and attachment. You know, we're not really that aware of what it's going to take for us to be truly free from suffering. Uh, and I know, it, you know, as the practice went along for me, I kept thinking it was sort of like up and out, you know, just this, it was going to be hard at the beginning and just transcendence, more and more transcendence, less, less, r- less struggle, less pain. And it wasn't like that at all. It was like, there'd be times when it was like more aversion, <laughs> oh no, you know, more attachment. And I didn't get it at first that this was a purification process. And that certainly, if this was easy, we'd all just sort of face a little aversion and attachment, we'd transcend and we'd all be fully enlightened. But in actual fact, you know, we get more courage, more energy, more skill so that we can face deeper layers of these, you know, where, you know, where we're really, where we're really identified <coughs> over the course of time. And that process becomes very joyful. Maybe it's not so um, pleasant all the time, but certainly joyful because you trust that it's happening. You see it happening over the course of time. The other aspect of what I feel very grateful for in in learning to be aware of the rising falling movement at the abdomen is how accessible the breath is and how neutral it can be at times. And so this winter I had the experience of being in the hospital with a dear friend who had pneumonia uh, and the breath was so labored and my dad just has got pneumonia, a very bad case. you know, he, he's laboring. 
And you know, when you're in a hospital, it's not quiet. But I'm seeing being, you know, I've been in the hospital long hours, day after day. And for me, it's a retreat. Um, and I see, I go into the hospital, it's like I think of it as a meditation center. And I go into the room, and it's like going into my yogi room. Uh, and when I can, when it ever is very rarely calm enough and quiet and not crisis to be just sitting there with the breath um, and with my dad's breath, it's not that he knows that I'm doing that, but it's like each breath is holy. Each breath is precious. And when we learn to find an ease in that, it doesn't mean that the attention has to be so precise that the awareness is in w- within the breath itself. It's a way of having life with great ease, great ease calm, and see the storm of a you know, the machines the person's hooked up are beeping, and you know, the hospital corridors are noisy, and people are coming in and out of the room. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful to be able to have a practice of having no preferences and c- just calm. I have a calendar that um, basically describes different things for every week, you know, like how to es- <laughs> this one is how to escape from quicksand, you know, and one is like how to, how to um, deal with an alligator when, you know, they're all really fun things. To <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy it. If you're a fear type like me, you really enjoy these things. Um, so I wanted to read from part of how to escape from quicksand. That was this week for me um, in in my calendar. (laughs) I'll just read two parts of it. Do not struggle and move slowly. Quicksand is not difficult to float in, but it can suck you down if you struggle too hard against it. It's so applicable to our practice. You know, when things are difficult, if it feels like quicksand, um, it can really suck you down if you struggle too hard against it. And it says, take the shortest route to firmer ground. (laughs) 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 Moving slowly. (laughs) That's why we learn to anchor. You know, you try to find something neutral, you know, when there's a storm to go to firmer ground. Floating on, this is tip of the week. Floating on, (laughs) 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 those are my favorite tip of the week. Floating on quicksand is relatively easy and is the best way to avoid its clutches. You are more buoyant in quicksand than you are in water. If you do not have a pole, Spread your arms and legs far apart and try to float on your back. (laughs) So the other way that I think that we learn to trust our practice is um, by learning to be with difficulty, by letting things get totally impossible sometimes. You know, that's the stretch. Um, And when we have those times in our life or practice, the only refuge there is in those moments are are to connect to the present moment. You know, and we learn that, you know, we'll struggle, you know, like a fish out of water, 
You know, we struggle with the quicksand, and we finally learn that the refuge is being in the present moment, is going through the experience as best we can, and finding ways to have neutral anchors that work with for us rather than lost in reactions. So the question that I think is helpful to ask when things are difficult is that is just can I show up for this moment right now? You know? It doesn't have to be the next moment, but can I show up for this moment right now? You know, and that's like a spiritual job description. Can I show up for the next moment right now? And not to get too far behind ourselves or ahead of ourselves. So showing up for life doesn't mean that life is a piece of cake. You know, it doesn't mean that we can control the joys and sorrows of life. And we do have seasons of life. We all have the times where it's summer or fall or winter or spring. And this is very individual for us. We all have a unique journey. Uh, So sometimes we have energy and sometimes we're weary. And sometimes there's the joy or the sorrow or the praise and the blame. And if we see that we can truly learn from this in the change of the vicissitudes in life, then we can trust the process of why we're incarnated. You know, why are we here? That we truly are giving birth to wisdom and to love. Probably most of you have heard the saying from the third Zen patriarch, the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their opinions. And it's so, so beautiful to contemplate this. And I think a lot of the practice is really facing our assumptions, our opinions, and our righteousness, because we have such a strong idea about how our practice should be, or how it should go, or how life should be, or you know, how birth should be, how death should be, how people should be, how the person next to us should be breathing or not breathing, or you know, what what what's the weather supposed to be like? You know, it hasn't been that warm and sunny, but the mosquitoes haven't been out. You know, there's there's these trade-offs always. Um, And ultimately, I think that when we're so identified with experience, we become so self-referencing that we forget that we're okay. (laughs) You know, that this moment is okay. You know, that this moment is deeply okay, just as it is. And that sometimes that we can tune into that. This is peace. This is unconditional acceptance. When we just can drop into the present moment. This doesn't mean that we have to get some kind of shovel out and go deep. That It's like sometimes going deep, and <laughs> not just sometimes, but going deep is just being with a sneeze or fear or the sound of a bird and or getting stuck in traffic. You know, whatever it is, it's just that lightness of being very fully here, being fully present, is deep. So 
sometimes we don't know that we have ideas about things until something changes. And uh, there's some land on the Big Island of Hawaii that we've been interested in um, developing a meditation center on. And the, the land will probably close in December. Uh, there's a stream on this land that goes into the ocean. And for six years, we've had a drought in Hawaii. Uh, and the stream has become more and more filled with debris. You know, storms will you know, bring down branches. And uh, with some rains in the winter, the, the, the stream blocks up more and more in all these places. And a few years ago, uh, there was a um, Native Hawaiian woman who upstream from us was trying to bring back uh, the taro um, in that valley where the native Hawaiians of old would um, grow their staple crop. And some of us went up there to help her clean out the debris from the stream so that they could irrigate the taro. Uh, so <laughs> in the last few years, in kind of walking down the stream where this land is, I've been looking at it, kind of assessing how much incredible work it was going to be to clean this one area out. And I'd go through another, and I'd be like, whoa, this is just going to be unbelievable. How, how are we going to clean this out? And really, I would think about <laughs> this a lot. And this year, we had these incredible rains, incredible floods. And I didn't really think about it. I hadn't been over there for a while, because I live on another island in Honolulu. And I came down the path and down to the stream after some pretty intense rains. Our drought watch is over, you know, after six years. And I came down to this area, and it was completely cleaned out. You know, huge trunks, branches, you know, little things, whatever it was. And I, it was so amazing to me. I was just kind of in shock. And you know, it was like, oh, nature took care of it. You know, I, I don't really, we don't really have to do this. You know, and it was such a shock to me that I don't know the, I don't know the kind of ecology of that system. And that I kind of had the arrogance to think that, you know, somehow nature didn't take care of these things. It was, it was really fun for me to see. You can also see tears as the same kind of thing. If you don't like tears, they kind of clear out um, some of the suffering. Another way that I think that we come to trust our practice, and I've mentioned it somewhat in this talk, but I want to talk about it a little more directly, is, is this um, joyful interest in the truth. And the Buddha taught that joy is the gateway to enlightenment, you know, the gateway to freedom. Uh, and, and technically, kind of the way that works um, in the practice is that when we can actually face our moment-to-moment experience for a while, this doesn't mean all day, you, you know, a few moments where you're, you're, you're facing your experience, you're mindful, there's some investigation, you're really paying attention, um, not thinking about the experience, but you're with the direct experience. Um, and there's some energy, courage to face what's happening. It's said that if that happens with some continuity, 
joyful interest in, in life will appear. And this doesn't mean that it's joy that's related to pleasure. It's joyful interest in the truth of things. It's a deep delight in being with the truth. So you know those, you've had them, moments when you're interested in, in the experience. You're interested in fear or interested in the breath or interested in opening a door, interested in brushing your teeth. Uh, and these moments, over time, I think, help us expand the territory, stretch our ability to navigate through life so that we're interested in more and more life experience. And I'd like to describe an experience I had last fall where I went to um, my nephew's wedding and reception on Cape Cod. And um, some of you know, I raised my sister's children, three children, when they were young. I helped raise them. And it was quite fun to have the youngest um, son, my nephew, um, have a wedding and reception. But I hadn't been around um, these children for a while, and it was a great reception. And I felt really full after being with them this, this, this period of time. Uh, and it was such a great feeling, and I was driving off, uh, <laughs> and I was feeling this feeling, and it was like, mmm. <laughs> I really like this. And I didn't notice the enjoyment. And it was like, ooh, you know, and a full, 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 full enjoyment, enjoyment. Uh, and then as I was driving, it started to dissipate. You know, it was just getting emptier and emptier and emptier. And then I found that I was feeling like, oh, missing them, and then this loneliness, and then this kind of emptiness that was very painful. Um, and I was just totally interested in it. It's like totally okay. And, and as I was, I was just interested in it, mindful of it, it was like watching that whole experience and I didn't feel like I had to hold on to them or the experience. I drove back here and it was great, you know? You just keep going. So it's not just like um, the practice is not just about um, you know a depth of awareness, but it's also about a breadth of awareness. And we work on those at different times in practice, sometimes at the same time of practice. Uh, but uh, try not to limit your practice to. Um, just a certain way that might be easy for you. Try to stretch where you need to stretch, but don't try to be perfect. You know, don't try to do it all. Move where it's easy to be still, and then stretch a little. Move to where it's easy to be still, and then stretch a little. And I think you'll find if you don't try too hard, but you don't give up, you know, but just keep steady with the practice, um, that you'll find that you find more deep delight in the practice. You know, you, you take refu refuge in the truth, refuge in the Dharma, um, and there's more and more peace and love.
So let's sit for a minute. I can assure you that this silence and this place is so protected and the conditions for practice are so rare. I really encourage you to really hold the container of the practice in this place. Keep going. Um, You never know what's going to happen, so enjoy it. Try to learn to trust your practice and trust the truth and have great joy in this practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.